we're trying to come for Queen Radio Spot. So y'all uh, gotta help us out. Nikki, we didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey y'all, it's Megan. It's Ashley. And Dylan. And this is the Forward South Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode eight of the Forward South Podcast. We're doing it again, guys. Welcome back. Hello. We have survived another week. Another week. In the South. In the South. Which is why we're doing this, really. Yes. This the real motivation. To show people that it's possible. <laughs> I'm melting slightly less these days, though. The temperature has dropped, at least temporarily. Mm. Fall so is coming. Temporarily, that's for sure. Well, why don't we just get started with our Southern Stories of the Week? Because speaking of climate, it looks like, Megan, you have something you want to chit-chat about this week that's very much relevant. Yeah. So Brian Lyman, a wonderful reporter over at the Montgomery Advertiser, has been doing a climate change in an Alabama series where he's explaining how climate change is affecting different aspects of our lives as Alabamians. And this most recent piece he put out is about heat and our health. And it was actually a very interesting piece. I'm not going to go through all of it, but aspects of our health are affected by rising temperatures, which are, you know, one of the main both causes and side effects of climate change. And something that was really interesting was there's a new study out about human health and climate change. And Basically, it can affect literally every part of our bodies, including our brains. So they can create physical dangers that lead to exacerbating respiratory illnesses by pushing ozone into the air. It can boost the range of disease-carrying mosquitoes and extend mosquitoes' life cycles. It can make storms and their after effects more dangerous. And it can affect our mental health because of things like storms and things like that. So the study also showed that like families who have gone through floods, actually both the children and the parents show that they have extended mental health problems afterwards, like years after the wow. fact. So not only are we, you know, breathing bad air and overheating, literally heat strokes and things like that. We're also, um, you know, the effects of climate change take a toll on us mentally as well. Mm. And I just thought this piece was so, so important and so interesting, especially as Alabama is, you know, we're prone to not only hurricanes, but tornadoes and there's mm-hmm. at, there's parts of Alabama that do flood because of the river. Uh, my parents actually went through a flood in 1994 and lost everything. And so I think that this is very important for Alabama and what we are going through. And if you haven't read these pieces yet, please do and take these pieces to your family and talk to them about some of these things that will affect them personally because of climate change. That's really cool. I mean, it's not cool that this is happening and it's being so largely ignored, but that Brian's spotlighting this, there's a level of nuance there that I, I mean, I wasn't aware of. And I think when I think about my own experiences, kind of like, you know, with hurricanes or, you know, flooding and like just... I, I get that, like that level of there's a trauma that comes with like that displacement, whether mm-hmm. it's temporary or, of course, much more, much more so significant one long term. But like having to leave your home suddenly, having to live in a place that you don't necessarily know where you're going to return to, going back home and realizing it's not the same, like all of those are mm-hmm. aspects of it that are really wrapped up in like what we need to be able to anticipate when we think about like the effects of climate change and what we'll do to our communities. I agree. I think it's for me, when I hear about climate change, I usually think of loss of land, Mm -hmm. but this series by Brian 
reveals the we talk often about collateral consequences of climate change. So in the article, he mentions how these impacts will hurt folks in low income communities the worst, people who work outside, people who do manual labor in these weather conditions, and how that will affect their health moving forward. I think it's interesting to be able to look at climate change in this way rather than just talking about what climate change is doing to the land it's also deeply deeply affecting the people a couple of weeks ago i posted on twitter and i was asking people how do you guys talk to your families about climate change because i do a lot of work where i try to confront my family about certain bigoted beliefs they may have or structural racism sexism and things but climate change has been something i've been not able to broach yet with my family. And I think this article actually gave me a really good launch pad to do that conversation because it's hard to talk about when when people don't necessarily care about loss of land, they are going to care about loss of their property. So it's an interesting piece. So recently, Judge Myron Thompson ordered Alabama to pay over half a million dollars to the ACLU for a previous attempt by Alabama to ban second trimester abortion procedures. So this is not the most recent abortion ban. This is a 2016 attempt of Alabama to limit access to abortion. And now we're seeing the financial repercussions for the state. So that number is $675,000 that... Alabama will have to pay attorneys who were telling them from the beginning, don't do this. Don't ban these procedures because you will have to pay. And I know, Dylan, you probably have insight into this. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Literally tried to tell them. (laughs) You know, I mean, you're right. This was already, you know, in the pipeline or in the tank, if you will, prior to the abortion ban that passed earlier this year and in our conversations with lawmakers you know this was like a a a constant talking point was we already have have paid and that was even prior to this decision you noted ashley but the state of alabama and the taxpayers of alabama have already had to front the bill for so many of these unconstitutional pieces of legislation here you all were in 2019 putting yet another piece of legislation into the pipeline to be challenged in the courts after you hadn't even gotten a decision on this case, which SCOTUS did deny cert review, which means that they decided to not hear the case over the summer, which meant that the decision went back to the lower court's decision, which was in the favor of the ACLU. So now they will pay up and the ACLU will hire more people and more attorneys and continue to sue on now also the case that is active, which is the abortion ban that caught a lot of national attention this year. This is so irresponsible on the state's part to continue continue to push these really unconstitutional pieces of legislation through and then expect the taxpayers to front the bill, like you said. Yeah, I think also what's so fascinating, I working in a different aspect of policy, this legislative session kept being very frustrated because good work that we could do and good policy that we could pass is always overlooked for policy like this. Like I feel like we're always going to choose the most regressive, the most Mm -hmm. attention getting, the most uh, vote getting legislation as opposed to actually legislating small changes that could really help us. And 
it was just a frustration to be over and over again that there were actually some good bills yeah. on the docket in the legislature. There were there was good legislation proposed and it was overlooked for legislation such as this. Yeah. So it's frustrating. And we're in a region where people really push back against using tax dollars frivolously. But when you see these bills that we're ending up paying at the end of the year, we're not paying for anything good. You don't have something in your hand that you can show that your government used your tax dollars for. But you do have (laughs) a federal judge saying, hey, you guys are stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Pay up. And quite frankly, you know, I, I, I was even struck by this as a person working, you know, closely on the bill. But like the fact is, is that you went we went to lawmakers and they said, this is what we want to happen. We want mm-hmm. it to be challenged in court. They don't care right. about the bill that the taxpayers are fronting. They don't care wow. about the fact that they are deprioritizing pieces of legislation that have an actual positive impact on people's lives, things that their constituents have been asking for, things that have been proposed from the city governments and the local level for them to go back to the state legislature and carry for them. All of those things get pushed aside because they we're truly make, looking to make a point with this, mm-hmm. which is to say we want to over, overturn Roe v. Wade and Alabama wants to be the state to do it. And we don't care at what cost that is to the people who we are supposed to be here representing. It's just, you know, like I had that question from so many people and I still get it to this day. Well, how do they explain this? And I was like, well, they don't. They, I mean, what their explanation is, it's like, this is the right thing to do. Everything is worth it when it comes to protecting the life of the unborn. Ridiculous. But as you all know well, I mean, Ashley, you're a social worker. <laughs> you know this the best of all of us. But that, that mindset changes swiftly mm-hmm. as soon as those children are born and, and as soon as they start being reliant on any level of a public benefit even to have the cost for their mothers to bring them into the world is a political issue for yep. many of these same lawmakers that co-sponsor this piece of legislation so you know so i'm just going to give you guys a quick update last episode we talked about the north carolina 9th congressional district and their special election that was taking place there unfortunately if you haven't heard by now Republican Dan Bishop nearly defeated the Democrat Dan McCready in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. As I noted in the last episode, you know, this was a race that was being closely watched for all the possible signs of weakness among Republican voters, among Donald Trump. You know, what would be his impact on the electorate, especially after what we saw in 2018 when Democrats swept the House. Um, And so another reason that this was frankly also being watched is because the special election um, in which McCready did still lose the vote count. However, the opponent at that time, who was not Dan Bishop, you know, of course, was accused of election tampering or ballot harvesting. And so he was removed altogether from the situation. Dan Bishop was put in and then ultimately he bested Dan McCready. But the margin, even in the special I mean, in the general election that took place in 2018, as well as the special, was rather small. And so this still says a lot about the gains that Democrats could be making, even in tough Republican districts. And, you know, maybe that this administration is wearing on even the average Republican voter. What also this means is that Republicans will have to win 19 instead of 20 seats to reclaim the House majority in 2020. So that's something we should all be deeply concerned about and paying attention to. 
Okay, so my actual Southern story of the week, though, that I really want to talk about is the fact that Southern black mayors, that would be the Democratic mayors of New Orleans, Columbia, South Carolina, Jackson, Mississippi, and Birmingham, Alabama, all signed and sent a letter to all of the candidates in Democratic primary at this time last week telling them that if they want a chance at their endorsements, they will need to present detailed ideas responding to the challenges facing their constituents. I'm just going to read a small piece from that letter that I think was really uh, incredible. So they start out by saying, our southern cities represent some of America's most dynamic local economies, yet national conversations around urban agendas are far too often centered around larger urban centers located outside of the south. The undersigned mayors collectively represent the voice of four southern cities representing approximately 1.7 million residents, including more than 345,000 Democratic voters, and importantly, 196 Democratic delegates in 2020 from the states our cities serve. And because our state's presidential primaries occur in the first few months of the presidential primary season, we fully intend to make the challenges our cities face and the priorities of our southern communities front of mind for your campaigns. Now, this letter goes on to note the challenges in health care, affordable housing, expansion of the community development block grant funding, failure to enact gun reforms, criminal justice reform, and air quality in our communities, among a list of other areas of concern. Now, I think this is particularly important because it not only pushes the candidates to come with comprehensive proposals to meet these challenges, but what it really also is doing is telling candidates about what pressing issues are on the mind of black voters in the Deep South. As you all know, this is really a motivation for why we do this podcast and so much of everything else we do with Forest South is that there is this narrative that you have to have some special sauce to capture the black vote. Or even worse, what we hear from conservative media, right, is that we're told the black voter is just interested in what the Democrats will offer us in public benefits or free stuff. And I think what I really just applaud about this effort from these mayors is that I think it it recenters the Democratic primary on the fact that black voters will ultimately decide the Democratic candidate. And especially black voters in the Deep South, those of us who are so oftentimes ignored, especially when we get to the general election. But Hillary Clinton won in 2016 the Democratic uh, candidacy because she had a stronghold on the South. We knew that, even Mm -hmm. as Southern voters and people who still vetted both candidates in 2016. And this time around, the Southern state primaries hold the potential to truly tilt the outcome of the race towards or away from certain candidates. So I just am really excited about them putting this out here. I think it's so critical to the conversation. Um, And I'm glad that they are also saying, you know, you're not just going to get our endorsement, but like I want to actually see proposals from you, something substantive on all of these issues that are really nuanced and interesting things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. And so good for them. And I like I just am excited to see where this goes. All right, so that's our Southern Stories of the Week, and let's jump into our next segment. This week, we are interviewing two spectacular preteens. Their names are Brooke and Brianna Bennett, and not only are they established documentarians, but they're doing some really cool work showing up for uh, women in their community, and we're going to hear a little bit from them about their work. 
All right, listeners, we are here today with Brianna and Brooke Bennett, and they are going to be talking to us about their nonprofit, Women in Training, which they are the founders of. You also may want to know that Brianna and Brooke are sisters, twins, actually. And so why don't we just start off with you all telling us a little bit about yourselves? My name is Brianna Bennett. I am 12 years old, and I was born in Miami, Florida, but I currently live in Montgomery, Alabama, and I love giving to the community, and that's what motivated me to do this project. Awesome. Um, my name is Brooke Bennett. I'm 12 years old, and I'm in seventh grade. I really like giving to those like who need it. So how did you all get the idea to start your nonprofit, Women in Training? Well, my mom used to work at an all-girls school, and she would tell us how the girls at her school would use socks and tissue and other things that they could just find around to use um, when they were on their period, and I think that they shouldn't have to do that. They should have what they need provided to them. Um, well, yeah, my mom told me that they had... She, they, the girls at her school had to ask her for pads because they couldn't buy their own. Wow. And so when you heard that story, I mean, how did it make you feel? Because hearing that makes me upset to know that people don't have access to those sorts of things. I know that it was, they were never provided to me when I was in school, I had to bring my own. And sometimes that brought me a little shame, like, oh, I'm carrying these things. So how did it make you feel to hear your mom tell those stories? Well, it was like no no girl should have to do that. And the whole reason we came up with the Wit Kits idea is because we don't want any girl or even woman to walk around feeling shameful with their period bag. So we want to create cute period bags or kits that we can provide to the girls who need it and so they can be confident um, with their bags. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say, I think this is just so cool that you all are so comfortable talking about a subject that, as you pointed out, Brianna, it can be like this shame that, you know, folks have to carry, you know, young girls have to carry when they talk about periods. And as a once upon a time, a young boy, (laughs) I remember, you know, it was kind of, I was raised by all women. And so in my household, it was something that was, you know, it was just a part of it's, it's a part of who you are. It happens, right? And so it's very natural, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. And so when I go to school, though, and the other guys would freak out if it came up or they didn't want to hear about it. Or, or Ashley, like you were saying, like if, you know, a girl opened her purse to get a piece of gum and they saw a pad or something was in there, it would just become like classroom chat about it and everything like that. And you all are just showing that you can be confident. You're kind of reminding people that it is normal. I don't even want to say normalizing it because it is normal. It should never have not been that way. And you guys just talk about it so kind of, you know, casually, which is really how it should be. How has it been in terms of your interactions at other kids your age and talking about these subjects? Um, Well, they basically tell us that when they don't have pads and stuff, they have to use other things instead of pads. And I think that every person needs, like, pads and stuff instead of using materials that aren't for it. Mm -hmm. 
So what have you learned from the experience of putting the WIT kits together? And could you tell us what's in the WIT kits? Well, I've learned that just having a cute bag to carry all the time with you to the bathroom or you can stick some perfume in there Mm. just to make you feel better. I feel like that would make me feel better. And the things that are in the WIT kits are, of course, the menstrual products like the pads and the tampons. We have soaps like shampoos and conditioners and body washes. And then we also had this new idea to put bracelets in our kits. So we've done that. And what else, Brooke? Uh, We also have these brochures with like, they like tell about your menstrual cycle so you know more about it instead of kind of being clueless. So we also have that. That's wonderful. So not only are you giving items or materials, but you're also providing education. Do you find that people your age don't have much education about their menstrual cycles? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) They're both shaking their heads. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Wow. So I know that for people who are in lower income households, it can be hard to access menstrual products. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, some of the less wealthy or less like middle class women can't use their food stamps that they get from the government to get their menstrual products and they can't buy their own. So as we said, they would use things that aren't meant for um, their menstrual cycles. And I feel like we should have period cards or something of that sort so that these um, women can get their menstrual products and soaps and just things to make them feel good in their bodies and clean. Just like how it is a a necessity to eat um, just as to be clean. And I just question how do they manage because if they if they can't use their food stamps for a period, I just wonder how they manage. That's a good question and I think, you know, you guys talked about the answer earlier is that they end up using things that aren't even meant or they use products for longer than they're intended to be used, which can cause, you know, toxic shock syndrome or just general infections that, you know, someone who does have money to access those products probably isn't going to end up getting. Mm -hmm. So it puts those families at risk. Thank you for bringing that up. I would love to know what is the future that you see for um, women in training, the nonprofit? Like, where do you see yourself further down the line? I want to do, like, nature retreats and get a ton of girls together and then tell maybe like period stories by the fire mm-hmm. or or just share like get a ton of um wit kits together and give them out and then going to other countries uh, um one thing that i really want to do is go to the bahamas and oh, wow. um donate some pads to the bahamas so yeah wow, wow. what about you um, I feel like I want it to go all more like more places in Alabama and um, hopefully around the United States so that more people could have it. 
Yeah. That's wonderful. So what all do, have you learned from this experience so far? Um, and what is it teaching you about what it means to be a leader and to be running a nonprofit and to be really just showing other kids what the possibilities are at your age? Um, um, well, it it's the legal part is hard. <laughs> <laughs> we yes. know that, too. You're We're right. still struggling with yeah. it. <laughs> But everything kind of just comes together, and despite all the hard parts and the downs, the ups always outrule the downs, and it makes everyone around us feel so much better. Yeah. It also makes me feel better because I know that people that don't have it now have it. Yeah. Yeah. So where will your WIC kits be going? Well, we are trying to get... For the future, we are trying to get our WIC kits to go global, but at the moment, we've just given them out to a group of girls here in Montgomery called New Beginnings. Oh, wonderful. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I know there's another question. So how can the community and people around the country who may be listening to this support your work? Um, they could go to our websites and stuff and just tell us if they want to donate donate donating helps a lot whether it's money or like pads or tampons or any of that stuff can you tell us what that website is um our facebook is wit alabama and the email address is witalabama at gmail.com perfect also our p.o box is P.O. Box 231394, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123-1394. Beautiful. So I know that one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is not just because of the work you're doing, but the, the age that you're doing this work at. I mean, when I was 12, I did not realize the impact that I could have, and I think in many ways you're showing even adults what we have the capacity to do because I think a lot of us tell ourselves oh we're too busy we don't have time to help our community or someone else will help them things like that so what would you say to adults who don't think that kids can make a difference I would say that our children and kids and teenagers are the future for this world and uh, we just want to try to make it like a great place for the other future generations to live in. What about you Brooke? I feel like that well yeah as she said that the kids now are our future and we should make a difference now so that the next generation can not have this trouble. So you all may know, may or may not know this, but our podcast is focused a lot on storytelling about the South. And we're, of course, here in Alabama. Can you tell me what you've recently learned about how these products are taxed in Alabama? Um, well, you have to pay tax for like tampons and things that you need for your period. And I think that's just not right because that's stuff that you need. Yeah, so it's almost like making people pay extra for something that they would be doing normally. Do you know if that's happening other places, or is it something that's just here? From my knowledge, it's only here. Wow. I didn't even know that. So that makes me angry, knowing that each time I buy menstrual products here, I'm paying more than someone 
somewhere else just because I have a uterus and I bleed. That's sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all so much for coming here and talking with us today. You have been two of the best guests that I've ever sat down with easily. I'm so glad we got to talk to you. Yeah. And we just really want to encourage you all to keep going because, as you said um, earlier, Brianna, you all are the future. And you also want to create a future that more really smart, bright young minds like you can come up in and continue to make an impact. So keep going, okay? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad we got to talk to Brianna and Brooke. They're amazing. Now let's figure out whose hearts we are blessing this week. I can go first. Go for it. So I don't know if you all saw, but a diehard group of district attorneys and law enforcement personnel, 12 of them, ventured into the depths of, as they say, the belly of the Mexican jungle to have what looks like this voyeuristic little boy fantasy of looking through drug houses and seeing where meth is produced. Wait, this is for real? Yes. I did not hear about this. Oh my God. (laughs) No, me and Dylan are looking at each other across the table like, what the heck? Taxpayers paid. For 12, 12 um, law enforcement and district attorney personnel to go to Mexico to see firsthand how drugs are made. Meth, particularly. They didn't have to go f- to Mexico to see how uh, meth they was sh- made. Did not. <laughs> okay, they did them. not. And they are saying they went because they want to reinvigorate their fight against the way that meth is taking over our communities. Hmm. Beautiful, great, wonderful. However, the way that you see how meth is affecting or impacting the communities in Alabama is by going to communities. Oh, they were just from Alabama? In Alabama, yeah. Oh, girl. They went to Mexico, the Alabama. People. It was all of them from, oh, I thought they were from across the country. No, no, child. no, no, no. no. Would have been totally different. They went on a field trip. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> Actually, it wouldn't have been totally different. This is ridiculous. But what I want to say is, bless your heart, all 12 of you. I would list your names, but AL.com already did that for me. Oh, I'm going to go look, too. <laughs> and I just want to encourage you to next time you decide to go on a field trip to make your field trip to the underfunded substance abuse treatment centers in our communities, Mm. the communities that have been largely abandoned economically and are now finding their worth in substance abuse addictions. I just feel like you don't have to have a, Michael Bay movie experience (laughs) to learn about how drugs are ravaging our communities. And for that, bless your heart, Alabama DAs and law enforcement personnel. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I have so many thoughts about that one, but I'm just going to leave it. (sighs) You guys want me to go next? Yes. Well, Mm-mm. I'm gonna have to pray about that one, y'all. I'm sorry. I know. I was just. Uh, I wish that. What was that energy? I would just say this. What was that energy than the crack epidemic? Right. Mm. Anyways, so 
I was scrolling down my feed today oh. on Twitter. <laughs> you know, this is usually where I find my bless your hearts. Um, and I saw what that a friend of see? mine had tweeted this, or really had, had shared a tweet from Emily's list. Ooh. I'm going to read to you what the tweet says here. Oh, no, God, no. <laughs> I've already, I mean, I've been, yeah, never mind. Oh, Megan already knows about this. Okay. <laughs> it says Alabama, Georgia, Ohio, Missouri, Kentucky, Mississippi. Republicans nationwide are working hard to ban abortion. If you're sick and tired of their dangerous agenda, donate today to help replace them with pro-choice Democratic women. Okay, so I would just, I don't <laughs> you, mean to take over your No, 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 you just heart. go. Um, if anybody follows me on Twitter, you know that I, I, at least once a week I rage against Emily's okay. list. I, you know, I was privy to this information um, from Megan. I've, I've heard this um, from a number of other candidates who also ran, and I'm glad to also see that some people were clocking them for it today. You know, but this issue, while we're picking on Emily's list a bit today, I will say this issue is even so much broader right. than them. This is something that lots of organizations um, have and continue to do. And, you know, this is something we've talked about in this show and I always like to pose to many people. But when Donald Trump was inaugurated on January 20th of 2017, for us here in the Deep South, that virtually made no difference. Our next day, the 21st, the 22nd, the 23rd, it looked no different. And Same why is old. that? Why is that? Because most of us were already living in states under the le- leadership of a complete buffoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody was talking about it. Emily's List wasn't posting about Alabama then. And as you just noted, Ashley, earlier in your Southern stories, it's like we have had this just year after year after year after year fights on abortion legislation in Alabama and across states around the Deep South. And those folks, these at Emily's List or most national organizations have shown up. Including the Democratic Party? Including Democratic Party. They haven't been proximate. They haven't invested. They haven't put their money down, which is how these things have festered, which is how these things have, have, have continued to take place. And, you know, the thing is, is that it's completely frustrating about this to me is that it goes to show that we really didn't learn that much from 2016. When we realized what we should have taken away from that is that investments and in engaging communities in color and getting people to the local and state level um, in elected seats, you know, we should have learned that there is consequences when we accept complicitness, when we accept liberal policies that only reinvent the same systems of oppression that conservative ones do. And Rather than being a part of those conversations where we can start reshaping in the Deep South these narratives that have already existed far before Donald Trump came along, that are misogynistic, that are homophobic, that are racist, all those things, whatever, rather than investing years ago in making sure that we disrupt those narratives now because it's been a bump frankly, for many other organizations, including one I work for, to be outspoken and to be fighting the tyranny that is Donald Trump and his administration, then everybody wants to fundraise off of that. And everyone wants to elevate how something like the abortion ban is a product of now this new administration and the, the, you know, the wave of flagrant anti-women, anti-LGBTQ, anti-people uh, of color, legislation and policies that have come down from the administration when in fact as we have noted the Alabama and the Deep South gave them truly the roadmap for exactly what we're Mm. seeing at the national level now Mm -hmm. so I want to talk to the organizations who were showing up before Donald Trump I want to talk to the people who have been you know amplifying 
the challenges that we face so uniquely here and have given really a pathway towards someone like Donald Trump, you know, the ability to be where he is today. Um, Alabama was a huge supporter of Donald Trump. I do not disagree at all with Emily's list that they need to be making the investment here. But don't tweet this out like you are already, like you really care. Like when you had the opportunity just in 2018, as Megan noted, to do something, you didn't. You didn't do it in 2016. You didn't do it in 14. You didn't do it in 12 or any time before that. All of us here are very involved. Y'all don't know nobody's from Emily's list that's been knocking on any of our doors. Not mine. Not mine either. So bless your heart, Emily's List, but bless your heart truly to all of the organizations that do this and think that they are going to gain clout by amplifying the issues and the challenges that we face down here in the Deep South when they aren't even showing up to do anything about it. Woo, snaps to that. So we know, again, who we don't like this week. (laughs) Who are your people? Well, I actually have a story about people who are showing up. So as we discussed in the last episode, uh, Dylan's Southern story of the week, I believe, or no, it was your, it was your bless your heart last week. Yes, it was. That's right. (laughs) Um, We know an administrator from uh, the University of Alabama was, well, he resigned. We don't know. It's too, (laughs) it is, it is too clouded um, behind the scenes right now for us to actually know how that went down. Uh, But he resigned after, let's see, Breitbart. That's who it was. Breitbart basically did a story (laughs) showing some previous, previous tweets that Jamie Riley wrote uh, that were frankly anti-racist tweets and that cost him his job at the University of Alabama. Okay. Well, let's fast forward a couple weeks now or two weeks later and UA students, University of Alabama students are protesting testing their right for diversity and inclusion and freedom of speech. And thank you guys for showing up. They're showing up at the president's office. They are demanding the president speak to them and they are telling him and, and the world right now that they will not be silenced. AL.com actually posted some footage from one of the marches and they were yelling changes now and we will not be silenced and like, good for you show up. I love it. As a fellow person who took to the streets in college on multiple occasions. Once or twice. (laughs) Once or twice. uh, We love a good protest. (laughs) Good for you. Use college as that sounding board. You should should take that opportunity to be able to organize and uh, make them listen to you as students because obviously who your administration is matters to your educational experience and how you feel valued at your school and just like... Y'all are my people. Go. I never thought I'd say University of Alabama students were my people, but you are. So thank you. Yes. Well, this week, I actually just met this person yesterday. Her name is Rosa, and she is the owner of Four Keeps Books, located in Atlanta, Georgia. It is a, another abolitionist bookstore. It's much like 1977 books, we had Steph and Allison on, as you all know, in the last episode. And uh, when I was in Atlanta over the weekend, I knew this was a place I wanted to go and check out. I am really just in this space of wanting to, like, absorb so much of what I can from the greats after Tony passed. It's just kind of like, I'm like, ugh, like I just want to take in everything. There's so much to be learned, especially when you're doing this movement building work from these just legends. And so finding spaces like that, like 1977 and Four Keeps Books that are really like uh, just a library for kids like us, frankly, it's just so exciting. I find that it's like really kind of spiritually re-energizing even to be in that space and 
So I went, checked it out with a friend yesterday and met Rosa, got there literally as she was opening and she was so sweet and just really took time to like talk to us, get to know more about the work that we do. And, you know, I just, you know, it's not often that you always kind of get to find people with that energy and who are doing just like dope work in their own way to really amplify and to accelerate um, the work that as maybe some would say like the practitioners like us are doing and so Rosa shout out to you I definitely want folks in the Atlanta area or visiting come visit your store so you all should go to 171 Auburn Avenue it's a beautiful store Rosa's beautiful she's doing a lot of great new programs and events and they've just been only open since November of 2018 I believe and so still fairly new and trying to just get things shaken so go check her out and Rosa you are my people also, Rosa, I am scrolling through pictures of your bookstore. I have not been there, and I have tears in my eyes because this is beautiful. So that is it for us this week. Any announcements, you guys? We have a Forward South community on Facebook, guys. Yes. So we want this podcast to be as much yours as it is ours. So we'll be posting... Um, our new episodes as we go in. And we're also going to start telling you guys when we're about to record. So if there's stuff you want us to talk about, let's talk about it in the group. Uh, you can for- find us at the Forward South Community on Facebook. Um, it's also part of our Facebook page on there. And yeah, go join and join the conversation. Yay. <laughs> Another, we episode. Did it again. <laughs> Another episode is in the books. Thanks for listening, y'all. Then remember to like us, rate us, share us, whatever you do to things. show us that you are engaging and listening. We appreciate We're it. Trying to comfort Queen Radio Spot. So y'all gotta help us out. Nikki, we didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>